And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with very special guests, Eleanor Arneson and Linda Nagata on the Coot Street Podcast! <laughs> and we're off and running once again. Um, uh, well, thank you, Eleanor. We're, we're, we're doing one of these uh, sort of multi-continental podcasts now because Linda is is in Hawaii, and Eleanor is in the Twin Cities, and I'm in Chicago, and, and Jonathan, of course, is on Mars. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm delighted to have both of you because I've been reading – I was going to say um, – I'll, I'll put it this way. I've been reading both of these writers since they were kids. <laughs> okay. Because, okay well, uh, stretch that out, Gary. I'm really interested to know how you make well, that okay, fly. Uh, it was, it was not long after I started reviewing for Locus that one of the one of the first novels that came across my desk and Charles Brown said you have to read this was The Boar Maker, uh, which I think is twenty years ago this year. Am I right, Linda? Yes, you are Hello? correct. That's right. I, I thought it actually so got, was a little bit longer than that, but it's twenty years. Okay, so then, if I'm not mistaken, that went on to win the Locus Award that year. Um, yes, for, and, for best. Uh, right. And Eleanor, I've been reading since, if I'm not mistaken, you came in really at the tail end of the new wave. Because weren't you published in New uh, Worlds uh, at the beginning? Yeah, yeah. Uh, first publication was 1973 in a late version of New Worlds. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then, of course... Um, Going on speaking of awards, which people accuse us of talking about way too much on this podcast, you received the very first ever James Tiptree Award uh, yeah. for a woman Iron People. So, con- yeah. very belated congratulations on that. Oh, thank <laughs> you. But it's certainly gone on to become a distinguished award, and back then nobody knew what was going to happen with it. Yeah, absolutely. It might be interesting, actually, just as a, a way of getting started, if we ask each of you how you got started writing science fiction, perhaps starting with you, Eleanor, because, well, you started earlier and then moving on to you, Linda. So, Eleanor, you, you started uh, publishing in the 1970s. How did you get started? What was it like? Um, well, I, yeah, I read science fiction starting uh, probably in the early 1950s, Read a tremendous amount of it um, and began sending things out, I think around 1970, maybe a year or two later. And, um, and the first person who bought anything of mine was Charles Platt. Hmm. And, uh, and, and he was editing that particular, that was a, a version of New Worlds that was coming out as a quarterly. And Charles was actually doing it rather than uh, Michael Moorcock. Okay. Was he in the U.S. or the U.K. then? U.S. Okay. He was living on Patchen Place? Exactly. Okay, I remember, yeah, I remember that address. How difficult was it at the time, do you feel, to break into the field in, you know, in, in the 70s? Um, boy, remember that um, uh, uh, Le Guin and Russ were starting to publish at the end of the 60s. And then there started to be a lot of women coming in, uh, a lot in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um 
So it wasn't like being completely alone. Uh, I ran into a lot of trouble. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that most, that it has never been easy for me to sell stories. It's gotten easy, comparatively easy in probably the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was it was always difficult. Uh, and I tended to have like one or two editors who'd buy me and, and the other editors wouldn't. Um, and nobody ever said we're not buying you because you're a woman. Mm-hmm. It, you know, so it's very hard to figure out why you're not selling. Yeah. And and then Linda, I mean, you you, you were first published in in the what the late nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. How did how did you get started? Well, I mean, I'd read science fiction all my life, and when I was in college, I had planned to go into biology, wildlife biology. My last semester, I had a sudden um, epiphany that instead I wanted to be a writer. I can't explain it. (laughs) (laughs) And since science fiction is what I I knew, that's what I started writing. And it took me five years, but I sold my first story to Analog. And, um, I mean, you know, in those days, I didn't go to conventions. I didn't know a lot of people in the industry. I communicated with a few... um, people like me who were trying to to sell our first story. But you know, I was like Eleanor said, I don't I didn't have anybody say anything against me doing this because I was a woman. I never encountered that to my face. And I, you know, I never even got the impression of it to be honest. And um Stan Schmidt encouraged me for a good long time and finally, you know, and he bought my first three stories that I ever sold. And I remember encouragement from George Sithers as well. One of the things that I thought was interesting about about your entering the field, Linda, was that you were doing it uh, essentially as a, as a hard SF writer, which was something that in previous decades had not been widely associated with women uh, or with women writers, fairly or unfairly, although there had been certainly C.J. Cherry and others around. But it did strike me in the mid-90s because I was going back and looking at that old review I wrote of The Boar Maker that there was a – it looked for a couple of years there like there was going to be a nanotech renaissance that looked a lot like cyberpunk had looked in the 80s. And it was – mostly it seemed to be with, with your series and Kathy Goonan's series coming out at the same time. It looked like a kind of uh, movement in science fiction. Uh, there was Neil – Stevenson's The Diamond Age, I guess, a little bit later. But it seemed to me that this was a movement in hard science fiction that was mostly being led by women in the 1990s. Um, does that sound anything familiar to what it felt like to you at the time? I never have thought about it that way, to be honest. Um, you know, I was completely taken by the idea of nanotechnology at that time just because of its... Um, it's association with biological processes that, you know, I could see how the molecules of, of our bodies work and how this could be seen to be analogous to other processes that you could possibly figure out how to get them to do what you want. And, you know, that was the approach that I always came into it from, from the biology side. That was, that uh-huh. was my background, and, and that's what made it really interesting to me. It was just one of those things that just clicked at the time. Now, if I, if I can flick around, Eleanor, when you started writing, what were the most important things 
that you wanted to to do with do with your work. I mean, I, I look. I first really encountered your work with maybe Ring of. Well, I'd read Daughter of the Bear King, but maybe with Ring of Swords, and with the Warhoff material, with the Lydia Dulloth series of stories, they're very much um, gender aware, politically aware kind of stories. Was there something that you were trying to achieve in science fiction you couldn't achieve elsewhere? And um, how important was it that that's what you were doing in your work? Um, I think I uh, always wrote science fiction because it's what I love to read. It's what I knew best. So there wasn't a deliberate, uh, you know, picking out of science fiction as the route I wanted to go. Uh, mm -hmm. Something that was kind of transforming for me was the second wave of feminism, which uh, hit um, in the late 60s and had, you know, brought a lot of women into science fiction. And there was a lot of writing about um, gender um, and gender stereotypes. So I just picked that up and and went with it. Um, and yeah, I think my writing has tended to be about um, reproduction, uh, gender stereotypes, um, uh, very typically, my characters are, are fighting uh, against the stereotypes of their society um, and trying to be independent people. And I, yeah, I think that all came out of the second wave of, of feminism. You were saying that in some ways it's become easier in the last decade to sell your stories. Do you think that the field is more receptive to, to that kind of work now than it was before? Um, you know, I'm not sure. I, I think one of the things that clearly has happened uh, when I'm doing dealing with editors now, in the first place, um, uh, I shifted away from novels in into shorter fiction, and um, that made a difference in my experiences. Um, and um, I think people finally um, knew who I was, and, and probably absolutely key to that was the Tiptree Award. Mm -hmm. um, lots of people are not aware that I had published three um, novels before the one that won the Tiptree. Uh, it's like my career started in 1992 when, uh, when that award uh, was made. Uh, and then I just think incrementally since then, uh, when editors turn down my short stories now, I get the impression they're kind of apologetic. You know, like um, <laughs> they... It, 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 there's a tendency to say um, we can't take this one, but of course we would always love to see more of your work. And it took me a couple of decades before I got that response. I think just a question of um, how long it takes for people to catch on to what you're doing. Uh, and a lot of my work is um, what meta science fiction. Uh, I'm playing a lot of jokes about science fiction, uh, I don't know, modes, tropes, whatever you want to say. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, I think it took people a while to realize that uh, that they were supposed to be laughing 
<laughs> that's that's fascinating because I, I know um, this has always been an issue in science fiction that uh, that that comedy you know is, comedy like satire is what closes on on Saturday night. But um, I remember when uh, when Ursula Le Guin had her collection of largely comic stories called Changing Planes that some uh, of the yes, people yes. Were, were were taken aback by the fact that these stories were funny and Ursula K. Le Guin is not supposed to be funny. Um, and and you've kind of taken that uh, several steps farther with these big mama stories, which are utterly hilarious and 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 and, and sort of uh, disturbing at the same time because of the issues that they raise. And, and this, is some of this a kind of a, or for that matter, some of the Warhath stories, like the Holmes Sherlock story, have a, a you know reasonable amount of, of of humor in them. Do you think that there's some reaction against that that uh, that science fiction is supposed to be a deadly, especially when you're dealing with speculative issues or gender issues or social issues, that it needs to be deadly serious? You know, I'm not sure. There have always been uh, science fiction writers who, you know, there's a whole strain of, of satire um, yeah. uh, in science fiction going way back. Um, so it's always been there. Um I think you have to signal very strongly that it's meant to be funny um, or else people um, get confused. Um, and uh, I think I have, not with the Big Mama stories, but with a lot of the stories, it's kind of a deadpan humor. And mm-hmm. that can really bother people. It, the other thing is there's a specifically Scandinavian and Scandinavian-American sense of humor where, um, uh, uh, you know, things like death are funny. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the one where the, the, the person is, is uh, passing around cookies at a wake and seeing the corpse bake these herself. <laughs> um, that that is hysterically funny if you're from the upper Midwest, um, and I'm not sure that everybody thinks it's funny. And it's like the movie Fargo, I suppose. Oh, uh, or or like well, I think a, a friend of mine who I think you know, Russell Letson, has a huge fund of Minnesota jokes that are just very strange to anybody not from the upper Midwest. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And and one of the things, and, and I'm going to go into my Upper Midwest mode and we'll stop it very fast. Um, <laughs> the Icelandic family sagas, um, a lot of the deaths in these, you know, these these great heroic epic struggles with always with death, a lot of those deaths are funny. And a lot of people who read the stories... Um, uh, without the cultural context, don't realize that, for example, the the systematic uh, execution um, in the uh, oh, I'm not going to block on which one of the sagas it was. Anyway, it was a bunch of Vikings and the Olmos Vikinga saga, um, and at the end they all get executed, and that's hilarious. <laughs> uh, 
you know, and there are all these jokes and witticisms, and you're supposed to be really rolling around on the floor laughing. Uh, uh, and if you do that kind of humor, you find you lose a lot of people. I could imagine, and some of that does come through in your Icelandic stories, in the in the hidden folk stories, uh, that that are oddly, I don't know what the word is, the, the, the reactions of characters are oddly affectless, I guess, to, to things yeah. that we would think of as a tra- tragedy. And maybe that comes from uh, living in cold climates. I don't know. I'm, I'm tempted to ask Linda, having been you know, raised in Hawaii, if, if a nice sunny climate changes the nature of your fiction in that way. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think I've ever made um, humor out of um, general death. <laughs> <laughs> Across the board executions. <laughs> no, but actually, actually it, it's interesting though to ask: Was there so- something that, when you started out, you're hoping to, or found yourself talking about more in your work than you expected? Me? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, as, as a beginning writer, I didn't know what to expect. I was just happy to come up with a story. Um, I think one thing that I did try to keep in mind. You know, living in Hawaii, um, the last couple of years, there's been a lot lot of talk about diversity in science fiction. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like that living in Hawaii can't help but be aware that there is diversity in the world. Well, actually, and I've, al- I've always tried to reflect that in my work. So... Well, actually, I'd like to ask you maybe as a response to that, to, to that statement, mm-hmm. um, and then, then maybe on, on to Eleanor as well. If science fiction and fantasy is talking about being more diverse and is patting itself on the back for being more diverse, do you think it's actually achieving it in your experience? I don't. My own experience is that it hasn't been as bad as people seem to want to believe. Yeah. I heard somebody say that what may be going on is a, a many people seem to read the bestsellers and maybe judge the field from that. But, you know, I can look back at books that are very been around for a very long time and were very cognizant of, of other races, of, of women who were strong and effective and had their own agency. It's not as clear cut, I think as we sometimes hear on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think, Eleanor? Is that your experience? Um, well, I've been getting kind of uh, irritated uh, by the current narrative, which is that the field was entirely white and male until last week. <laughs> I um, loved yes. <laughs> Uh, it, it wasn't. I mean, this absolute flood of women came in in the 70s, there were women before that. They, you know, were not that numerous, but some of them were important. Um, the Earthsea trilogy uh, is Le Guin is very deliberate about making only one kind of barbarous group, uh, minority white, and everybody else in Earthsea is brown or black. Um, I think there was a lot more of that than than people want to talk about right now. Um, 
especially I think among the the women writers that they were uh, they were taking on uh, 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 gen- gender issues, sexual orientation issues. Uh, Elizabeth Lynn, uh, Melissa Scott. Um, it, Vonda. <laughs> yeah. Vonda yeah. McIntyre. Yeah. Um, I guess if you go back far enough, uh, one of the stories I was, uh, I've been preparing a series of lectures about science fiction and digging back into some of that history. And one of the stories which has been being rediscovered now by uh, largely feminist readers was a C.L. Moore story called No Woman Born, which is about a famous dancer and TV star who gets terribly damaged in a fire and and, and is is reborn as a robot. And when you look at the reactions to that character in this story from like 1942 or something, it raises the whole issue of if you embody a woman in a non-gendered body, is it still, how do you react to that person? And the reactions of the male characters could have been written yesterday. There's somebody who insists that this person is a woman. There's somebody who insists this person is not human. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it seems like all the gender issues are there, and I can't imagine that, uh, that, that John W. Campbell, I think, in buying it, even knew that was going on in the story. But I have no doubt that C.L. Moore knew what she was doing. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think that um, uh, it, it, it goes back a, a fairly good long time. Um, well, we're talking about going back to the end of the 60s, if not earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is, one of the things that's really bothered me um, is that, um, and I take this very personally because I think it happened to a lot of women of my generation, is we kind of have faded out of people's sense of the history of science fiction. Um, and, uh, I, and I'm trying to remember the name. There was somebody talking about women in science fiction who was saying that a few women like uh, Octavia Butler and Ursula Le Guin are remembered. And then all the other people around them have become less and less visible. Well, I think, you know, that's what Chris Rush was on the show a, a couple yeah. weeks talking about. Yeah, right. And that, that was a terrific show. And um, Eleanor's essay was the, what are we, chopped liver? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that if, if people haven't read it, they should go look for that. I think it's at Strange Horizons, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll put up a link and, to it. Okay, and it, it's it, it's a terrific essay, bec- and I've seen the same thing, you know, with the, that generation, and even with mine, I've seen um, younger writers who will say, "Well, when I was growing up, I, you know, I read Ursula, I read James Tiptree, and it stops right there." Yeah, which it gets very frustrating when you you hear that time after time. Well, is, is well some... it was interesting. Uh, a, a couple of years ago at ReaderCon, um, Catherine McLean showed up, who I'd never met before. Nobody, I don't think anybody had met her there except possibly David Hartwell. And the the reaction to her being at that sort of gathering that they have at the beginning of, of, of ReaderCon was was interesting because there were people like myself and and okay, aging science fiction readers who were thinking, "Oh, this is Catherine McLean, who I've never seen before," and it's astonishing and we were gaping and 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 then 
readers under the age of, let's say, 40 to 45 were saying, who is that and why are you so excited about her? Um, and it occurred to me later that's partly because Catherine McLean's stories haven't been available to younger readers. Mm-hmm. And you know, in a sense, I'm in a similar situation because circa 2001, I basically stopped writing science fiction. I stopped publishing it. And, um, you know, I disappeared from the scene. Mm-hmm. So when I came back with my, with my newest novel, the, peop- the people who paid attention to me were things like Locus or Tor.com, but all of the young, the young blogger sites, um, blogger reviewers, they, they had no clue. They, they had no idea that I'd ever written in the field before. So it, hmm. it's, you can disappear very quickly. And over those years, my, my books were out of print. Um, a couple of them might have been in print for half the time, but they went out of print as well. So I, you know, I brought them back into print myself. But it had been I think a- you de- just to pause there, you deserve some congratulations for that because there was a fair amount of discussion, which I'm sure you were aware of, at getting uh, what was essentially a self-published novel on the Nebula ballot. Uh, yeah. That seemed to be a huge uh, encouragement to all sorts of people, uh, not just people self-publishing, but people who wanted to bring uh, books back into print through independent presses. And it seems to have had some effect. I mean, we're seeing more and more of that. So, so, so you might have made a real change with that, uh, with, with Red. And we should mention that the third novel in that trilogy is out in what, about a week? About a week and a half. Yeah, November about 3rd. Yeah. Okay. That'll, that'll finish up the trilogy. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to say that um, it seems to me that in publishing itself, there, you know, we've seen the, the large-scale death of the mid-list over the last two decades with changes in technology, changes in distribution. And any um, industry, like science fiction, like film, like music, that is based on the new thing tends to, I think, lead you towards erasing what's happened before anyway. I think there's a general trend in science fiction that we forget half of what's happened before. But do you think that that we are more prone to do that with, with, with women and women writers. I mean, my own feeling is I think that, first of all, I think we're more prone to um, forget women writers and we're more prone to forget older writers. You know, if you've been around for a while, it seems to be easier for us to gradually erase you from our memories. So when, the, when younger people come along, they don't hear about you. Do you think there's any truth to that? Yes. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things that, you don't have the hard evidence for it. Yeah, it's, it's the whole question of if you write under a woman's name, is that, how bad is that for your career? And you don't know because you can't run both tests. So I think, you know, we tend to look at the, the general spectrum of who's remembered and who's not. Who comes up on the lists of, you know, great fiction of a certain period or... Um, the books that everyone needs to read. And then that's where we begin to see that the absence of a lot of um, not particularly older writers, but older women writers who are often not seen on those lists. And I think that, that was Chris's big concern. This project that she's doing now on women of science fiction. Well, I think it's a reasonable general concern. I mean, 
there also seems to be like like a, a downscaling. I mean, so I mean, for example, Lin, uh, Eleanor, you wrote one of my favorite novels, Ring of Swords, for I think David Hartwell at Tor. Mm-hmm. But now you're mostly published by Aqueduct. Does that change what you write, how you're published, and who you can reach? I'm sure it does. Um, I had had uh, pretty much uniformly bad experiences dealing with New York houses. And then um, I was told quite explicitly uh, in the early 90s that that given my sales, I had no future as a novelist. And the combination of that statement and the fact that my experiences with New York houses had been so unpleasant, uh, you should look at some of the covers I've gotten. They're mm. nightmarish. Mm. <laughs> um, and I just thought, that's it. Um, I'm going to stop doing this. And so I shifted over to writing short stories. And then what happened is my short stories, uh, which were usually actually novelettes and novellas, link up. Mm-hmm. And so that I, I uh, what I'm really doing is sort of like uh, old-fashioned fix-ups. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you're not going to sell that to a New York house. And an aqueduct will buy them. So that um, I don't think aqueduct is as visible as the New York houses, but they buy my stuff and they publish it. And that is a lot more visible than not getting published at all. Um, And I know, you know, there's all kinds of things where we really need to do a lot of research, like how many women writers disappear versus how many men writers. Somebody has to sit down and, you know, compile lists. Um, and, uh, And then one has to sort of try to figure out the impact of the small presses, um, which I think is considerable. Uh, I'm very impressed by what the best of the small presses are doing. I I think that, uh, uh, you know, something like Aqueduct or um, Small Beer, you can really rely on the fact that the books they produce are going to be worth reading. I may not like them, but they're worth looking at. Um, but I don't know that anybody has really looked at um, uh, this kind of shift. Um, You're not going to get rich and famous getting published by a small press. (laughs) No. Were were you tempted to self-publish at all? I haven't been because, um, um, because Aqueduct appears to be willing to take everything of of mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, and as long as, uh, as long as they're willing to to do the work of producing the book, and handling the marketing, um, I'm uh, I'm I'm not going to do it myself. Uh, I I can't imagine. Now, Linda has self-published, so she can talk about what's involved. It sounds to me like an incredible amount of work. Is it, Melinda? It's it's a fair amount of work. Um, with me, though, I just really, really enjoyed the whole process when I started out. Um, I'd always 
wanted to self-publish my books from when I was getting annoyed with the way they were being handled. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so when when the self-publishing revolution started, I just happened to be in exactly the right place with exactly the right experience because I'd just spent nine years working in web development. And uh, and an ebook is is basically an HTML HTML file. Yeah. So, you know, I I could figure out pretty quick how to make an ebook. Um, I had taught myself the beginnings of InDesign a couple of years earlier, since I I had this ambition to publish uh, my novel Vast on its tenth anniversary. I never uh-huh. I, I miss I missed the anniversary, but I did eventually get it published again in print. Um, and I just, I just like the process. I, I'm not the kind of writer who can write all day. I like to do different things. So the whole situation just really worked for me at the time. Um, you also had the advantage of uh, having experience. You knew how publishing worked. You knew what book cover design needed to look like. In other words, you knew the whole process of publishing. And you knew web design. So that's a fortuitous combination of circumstances right there. Yeah, it was actually a pretty amazing combination. <laughs> It was for once in my life in the right place at the right time. <laughs> because, because the books look good. I mean, the covers look really professional. And they have well, from, from the time. Yeah. I, I have to say, though, that um, uh, the nanotech books, those are all Bruce Jensen's covers. Mm. The, the, that's the, the same art that he did for the original editions. And then he um, redid the covers for me with his own cover design using the same art. So I really lucked out on those. Well, here's a question that's related to that because the the, the current, the Red Trilogy, uh, moves into a kind of area of uh, uh, military science fiction, really, which is a lot different from the nanotech novels uh, that just uh, quartet. Do you find that people who who like these novels are going back and picking up your very different earlier novels? Some are, but not from what I can see. um, It's not really that common. Um, you know, I haven't seen any big surge in sales of, of the older books, which is a little mm-hmm. disappointing, I'll admit. But they are. They're very different books. Um, they are a much more directly action-adventure, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they are very blatantly military novels, which has put me in this very interesting position because... From what, I, from what I've seen, people who like to read military novels are enjoying them. And then some people who have actually dared to read them are, are saying that they are the military novels for people who don't like military novels. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it, it's, so you're I'm not sure which of some... the slides is going to help me more. So. You're in this, kind of the same position, I guess, that Joe Haldeman was in for a long time when People who loved war novels were reading his novels, and people who loved anti-war novels were reading his novels, and they both thought they were reading them correctly. <laughs> that, um, yeah, it's, some, it's very similar to that. Yeah. I am curious, uh, how hard was it for you to get people's attention for your books during the period that you were publishing through Mythic Island? Pretty hard. Um, you know, as you know, there's just so many books being published. And getting anyone to pay attention to them is a real challenge. And the books aren't, 
you know, it's hard to say this without really sounding insulting, but they're not your, they don't have the typical tropes in them. And I think a lot of people who read a lot of, um, you know, the independently published fiction are looking for something that they know instead of looking for something that is new to them. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I'm not. So it's a little hard to sell them in that way. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Are you, are you saying that people who who tend to buy self-published books are looking for just reinforcement? They're looking for another Fifty Shades of Grey or another uh, The Martian or some, something which which just basically pushes their buttons. In other words, what they're looking for is formula fiction. And if you're not no. delivering that, I how think do they that, respond? Yeah, I mean, of course, self-publishing is a hugely diverse field, but. Yeah. My impression from you know from what I've seen is that um, yeah the fiction that pushes the buttons I think that's a great way to describe it tends to sell a lot you know now whether that will sell you know well at at ninety nine cents or a dollar ninety nine but not at mm-hmm. you know eight ninety nine I don't know um, but it is it's a very complicated market from what I can see and. Um, you know, so what I tried to do was get attention for the books from a couple of other readers. I actually didn't really send it out to that many people. Um, I sent it out to a few reviewers, and just you know, if anybody offered any publicity opportunity, I would grab that and um, see what would come of it. So it was a really a very slow process, and um, you know, it was helped by other writers. Um, in certain groups that I'm a member of, um, who read the books wow. and, liked and would would turn around and um, and talk about them, so, you know, they say word of mouth is 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 what sells books, and I think that that is entirely true. I wonder if uh, Eleanor, going back to what you were saying about the small presses, there seem to be two models of getting your work before an audience because some of the small presses we've talked about, like Aqueduct and Small Beer and and Subterranean have a pretty clear idea of who their readers are, and they have people who follow those presses closely. Um, Aqueduct has a very effective mailing list and email list, so does Subterranean. And so there's almost a guarantee that you're going to uh, sell X number of copies to that core audience, Uh, whereas the opposite seems to be the self-publishing where you've got a mass amorphous audience and you don't have that core at all. I, I'm not going to say which is better, but uh, I think one of the things, Eleanor, you were saying about Aqueduct is that you know a certain number of readers who want to read the kind of things you write are out there on the Aqueduct mailing list to begin with. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that uh, one of the things, uh, and again, Linda can address this much better than I can, when you're publishing from a New York house or a, uh, a small press, uh, while they may not be doing a huge amount of promotion, uh, there's a certain amount of message that comes from the fact that it has been published by Tor and a different mm-hmm. message that it has been published by Small Beer. And, um, and I think there's a kind of a minimum audience uh, that you're likely to get. After I say this, I remember that apparently the average reader never notices publishers. 
<laughs> and I have always noticed publishers, or at least for the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. But I think the small press readers do notice publishers. I think they do pay attention to specific presses. I suspect that science fiction readers are probably more aware of publishers. Bain Books has its own group of followers. Oh, absolutely. And when I was a ki- and when I was a kid, I, the first publisher I ever became aware of as a, as a reader, as a child, was, was Ballantine Books because yeah. there were a lot of science fiction paperback publishers. But I knew that Ballantine was publishing stuff I liked to read. They were publishing Clark and Bradbury and, uh, uh, and Sturgeon and that sort of thing. So I, I think that awareness has always been there. I think it's, it's there with Small Beer. It's there with Subterranean. It's there with Bain Books, and it's certainly there with Aqueduct. Uh, and it's, you're right, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a huge breakout audience, but it's a dependable audience of what we might call sympathetic readers. Well, I think mm-hmm. the, other, the other thing, though, is that com- when I had um, self-published The Red, it was, um, uh-huh. as I think I mentioned, it was very hard to get reviewers to take a look at it. Um, since Saga, Saga Press has published The Red, uh-huh. a lot more people have taken the book a lot oh, more seriously. Okay. It's made a big difference, big, big difference in the amount of reviews the books the book has gotten. What has the uh, move back to New York publishing been like? Oh, fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, Joe's a great editor to work with. Um, and I just I have to say that I just love the covers that they've done for the books. Um, the art's by Larry Rostant, and mm-hmm. I think it's just perfect it's absolutely perfect for the books um after you've had complete control of your work for three or four years and you you hand it off to other people it can get a little frustrating um (laughs) (laughs) when some of the pieces don't quite fall into place as soon as you want but hey i'm a mom i'm good at nagging (laughs) these things work themselves out well do you ever do you ever ever just say to yourself Hey, these are marketing people. They know what they're doing. I don't care. If, I don't care if there's a brass brazier on the cover. If it'll sell books, that's essentially what Chris Rush was saying about her anthology. She was saying, yeah, "Whatever sells books." That. That, that's actually a good attitude to take. But I mean, I found in the past with covers that I don't like, they also don't sell books. So. Well, <laughs> but I've never had the brass brazier, so. <laughs> Maybe that's been my problem. Now, Eleanor, it's been some years since you've been published by New York. Have you? Do you and, and you've said, you know, earlier on that you know, that it wasn't a great experience for you, and that you did, and I absolutely agree, suffered with some truly appalling covers. But do you have any attraction to uh, having work come out from New York again to, to move back to the to, to the larger presses? Um. Yeah. Um. Uh... I, I certainly wouldn't turn it down. Um, and I think that, um, uh, I think I should have tried to go back uh, to writing uh, at least a couple of proper novels and tried to place them in New York. I, I think uh, uh, it's not smart to write off New York. Um, uh I think, you know, the old advice that I believe they still give, but when you sell a story, you sell it, you know, you send it first to Asimov's and or to FNSF, yeah. and then you work down until you're um, at, you know, to mimeographed man, uh, fanzines. Um, and I think 
it makes sense um, if you're writing novels to start with New York. Um, uh, I ended up with these, uh, uh, writing all these related short stories, and, and New York has essentially no interest in short story collections. Um, but, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, that, I was going to. I was going That's to say. Stop. You're talking about the. Okay, the, but the Warhath stories, which have been going on for for years now, uh, must have a following. I mean, I'm certainly interested to see a new one. And don't don't you get some feedback from people saying, "When is the big Warhath novel coming out?" Um. Well, there was supposed to be Ring of Swords was actually supposed to be a trilogy. Um, and I wrote the second book, and then uh, uh, Tor was not interested in buying it. Uh, and I have had people who have been nagging me for whatever it is, 20 years, about that book. Um, there, there are serious problems with a science fiction novel that is, is 20 years out of date uh, because the world changes so fast. Uh, so I, uh, I haven't been able to figure that, how to fix that. Um, yeah, there's an audience. Um, Aqueduct, the next project is a collection of all the horror stories. Oh, good. And, and that should be coming out uh, by next Wiscon. Mm -hmm. So there's an audience. Um, and I think if I had... Um, you know, talking about the issue of uh, women, and uh, as we started, um, uh, I think that um, you have to be fabulously, if you're a typical science fiction writer, you have to be fabulously determined, uh, because I think that a lot of things can go wrong, and um, I, most of the writers I know have had, who are mid-list, have had one setback mm -hmm. after another. Um, and uh, I don't know, what am I trying to say? That um, maybe women have given up more often than men? I'm not sure I want to say that. Um, there um, are women, fine writers, who have stopped writing, to my knowledge. I, I, I have uh. to say, I, I would struggle to believe that that were... That, that were actually true. I mean, if, if only because there are so many pressures on, well, on anyone's lives, on anyone's lives, that demands time. Uh, and, and I could well imagine that it can be more difficult to find the kind of time to push through, but also that maybe the mechanisms haven't been as automatically in place, I guess, to encourage people to, to keep writing. You know, I mean, it feels like, particularly in the, the, the book scan era of publishing, uh, you know, book publishing moved to a more disposable, a far more disposable way of approaching its writers, whether publishers wanted to or not. You know, so that if you had a book that hadn't sold terribly well, we've moved on to the next person. And unless you're going to change your name and try again, you know, you're you're done. I mean, I think stories like well, like Linda's, where you, you know, you start off with a major New York publisher, you go off and become an independent publisher yourself for a decade, and then end up back in New York is really quite unusual. I can't think of ter terribly many examples, but I think it's encouraging that 
New York might be willing to re- to rediscover people. I think it's great that Joe Monty at Saga is doing it, and I would hope to see more of it. And what I would hope is, I mean, because when I look at, at your career, uh, Eleanor's, most of your you know your novel length work is before the book scan era, I, I guess. So I would have thought that there'd be some chance that New York would be open to publishing novels by you, but I mean, I don't think we've seen uh, a new novel from you since since Ring of Swords. Yeah, that's right, which is 93. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I really just made the decision that I was going to shift over to shorter fiction. And as I say, I I think it would have been smarter to write a couple more novels and see if I could sell them. Uh, I guess I'm hoping that someone out there listening to this uh, conversation... uh, hears me and decides that they're going to write yet another novel. Um, yeah, I don't think, I don't think it was a, 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 a smart move, but um, I love the novelette novella length. I think those are beautiful lengths. And um, I think, I, well, I take great pleasure in writing them, and I take great pleasure in writing linked uh, stories. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it's a good career move. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't well, advise it. Well, I mean, do you think you're more naturally a short story writer? Uh, I think I'm. My natural length is um, novelette, and then going up a little into novellas. Uh, actually, the closest thing to a novel I have published in recent years is a Lydia Duluth story called Tomb of the Fathers. And it is just short of the, um, it, it's a, it's a, a novella, it's just mm-hmm. short of the novel length for Nebulas. And that was not intended. It was not intended to be a novel. It was a novelette that got badly out of hand <laughs> um, and would have been absolutely unsellable except as a short novel and except to a press like Aqueduct. But yeah, I think my I think my natural length is long novelette uh, going into novella, and and excuse me, no. I guess some I, kind of haunted. Oh, go ahead, Patricia. How about oh, no, you? Sorry, how, how about you, Linda? No, I was just going to say that I think one of the um, the the wonderful things about writing these days is that you. You do have this choice. Um, I don't know about everybody else, but writing a novel for me is really, really hard. And one of the reasons I stopped was because it just felt like it wasn't getting me anywhere. That I would put all of my spare time into the book and it just wouldn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big seller. It wasn't making me money. There, there was a lot of financial pressure. Mm. But... If you can, um, you have the options of, of trying to sell to a New York house or going with a small press or publishing it yourself, it just opens up so many more opportunities. And just yeah. having yeah. that option is so encouraging. And I think it's, it's starting to bring a lot more writers back into the field. And the growing popularity of novellas, I love that. That's... That's a length that I would really like to be working at. 
Uh, that, that's and that's interesting because you can sell those independently on Amazon. We had we were talking to Cecilia Holland, the historical novelist, a couple of weeks ago, and she actually made a fair amount of money writing novella length nonfiction pieces for those Amazon what do they call them singles or something. Yeah. So so I think there are ways of doing that now. I'm kind of haunted by something Eleanor said a few minutes ago about the number of women who've given up uh, and. And both of your stories in different ways are messages not to give up. I mean, there's the self-publishing track in one hand, the small press in the other. I was thinking, I was talking to Molly Gloss at, uh, at the Worldcon at the in, in, in Spokane. And she wrote what I thought was a terrific novel. And she's one of the authors who it's, I think, fair to describe more or less in the aqueduct universe. Uh, but The Dazzle of Day, if I'm not mistaken, was the last science fiction novel she wrote. And uh, a writer who started about the same time you did, Linda, Patricia Anthony, um, for the last 15 years of her life didn't publish a novel, I don't think. Uh, even though she had some terrific, she had a terrific beginning as a science fiction writer, and it just, it didn't happen for her. And I think she died a couple of years ago. Oh. But then they, this, this gets back to data. Um, um a writer who I liked very much, both as a writer and as a person, John Sladek, who was mm-hmm. a, basically a 60s writer, uh, New Worlds, incredibly funny writer. And he wrote... Um, uh, Mechasm was the English, the American title of The Reproduction Machine, was that it? Yeah. Yeah, and he wrote TikTok, which is a right. wonderful robot, very dark robot no- novel. And then he wrote, I think, three very sweet robot novels, which uh, uh, it, the, the character's Roderick, and yeah. I think Roderick the name goes... Yeah. Roderick at um, random, yeah. And uh, an insanely funny guy. Um, and... Uh, uh, he, uh, 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 I met him when he moved uh, to Minnesota, uh, back from England, and he did mm-hmm. a little bit of writing after he came to Minnesota, but not a lot as far as I know, and, you know, just stopped, got a job doing, I think, technical writing, and uh, had a second marriage, which was apparently very happy, um, and uh, just you know, so I'm, I, I guess I guess the moral is um, I suggest that women may have uh, left the field more often than men, but I don't know that. Yeah, you're and right. I'm not There's even no sure data. how we'd uh, uh, determine that. Um, uh, do you all know about um, Nicola Griffith's project of tracking. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, we need something like that for some of this other, other, uh, well, these other questions. Right. I mean, there's no getting around it. It's a really tough business. And most of the writers that I started out with are no longer writing novels. And That's depressing. Whether they're men or women. Mm-hmm. They moved on to more lucrative fields for the most part. I, I, I guess there really is a, 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 dirt, well, a dearth of data and a, a, a limited access to the data you'd need to actually make an informed statement about what's happening because you'd need to look at, first of all, a population of writers moving through time 
by gender, and then the reasons that they do drop out, whether it's poor sales, whether it's other life events, whatever else it is, and those that come back, those that stick with it. Um, I, I guess a question that I'd ask both of you is, having had the careers you've had to date, and looking around the field today, which at least pays more energetic lip service to the idea of inclusiveness... What advice would you give to young women writers trying to break into science fiction today? My advice would be to write absolutely what you want to write. Don't listen to the negative voices which say that women aren't allowed to write hard science fiction. Find something that you love and write that. Because no matter what you write, the odds are stacked against you, whether you're a man or a woman. So just do what you love and and give us something new and exciting and different. Eleanor? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, Your chances of of being a wild success are so low that you might as well um, write what you want to write. Um, You can't sell out because there's, you know, nobody's buying. Um, And... The other bit of advice I would have, I guess two bits. Um, one is uh, be persistent. Um, unless, of course, you just decided you have other things you'd rather do. But what I notice um, uh, is that uh, a writer that... Well, I can remember when an editor told me that Pamela Sargent's career was completely dead because I believe the third volume of the Venus Trilogy was very late in delivery. And the editor absolutely confidently said, you know, she's finished. Well, what happened is that um, uh, a new house started a new line and the new editor there picked up the out-of-print, the two out-of-print Venus books, and published the third. And you see this fairly often. You see um, that that the people who stick around may may suddenly uh, become visible again. Uh, And I think the third bit of advice I would have is um, learn a fair amount about the business of writing. I mean... Um, you know, uh, it is a business and, uh, it, it doesn't do you any good to not know about agents and, and, uh, you know, not know what's happening in publishing. Uh, so that's, that's all the wisdom I've acquired in my life. <laughs> I think that you're, oh, you're, the last point is certainly, uh, one that I've seen and heard before that if you if you think you're going to be the next Andy Weir or the next E.L. James, is that her name? Have I got that right? Um, that's like buying a lottery ticket. <laughs> you know, there's one in 10 million chances that that will happen. Um, but the other thing that struck me about what you were saying, what, really when you mentioned the, the, um, uh, the issue with Pam Sargent, is that you're giving advice to people who might have been thinking about giving up as well as to people who are breaking into the field. Uh, because as soon as you mentioned the the Venus trilogy, I, I thought of two other examples. One was Susie McKee Charnas, 
who had more than yeah. a decade, I think, between the second and third volumes in her Holdfast Chronicles. Um, and and those they all four all four of them got published, but you know, as as a set, I still don't think they're appreciated as a as a four volume sequence as much as they should be. And the other one related to that, oddly enough, was Joe Haldeman's Worlds trilogy, where there was a decade, I think, between the second and the third volume. So even if people have so, so I guess what I would add as a footnote to the advice you gave is that if you're somebody who had a career once and you think it's over, maybe it's not. Well, and when you talked about Molly Gloss, um, I read The Hearts of Horses, I think, which yeah. is a, a wonderful uh, uh, western about the settlement of uh, eastern Oregon. Um, it's, it's really... Um, uh, and I have no interest in novels about the West. I only read it because she had written it. It's it's a good novel. Her main character is a woman who's a horsebreaker, so you have a really interesting viewpoint character. And she discovered quite accidentally that there is a serious market out there for novels about women and horses. And uh, and I think she, you know, developed a passionate audience with that book. You mean so adult women people, of horses? Yeah. She, sometimes We're not talking people, about black. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. people just, you know, take a step sideways, and, and you discover now they're uh, like, um, oh, I'm going to block on her name, Kate Wilhelm, Murder yeah. Mysteries. So that's the other thing you can and oh, Griffin the historical novel, yes. Yes, which apparently is fabulous. I have, I have a last question for both of you because it's just because of the sort of contrast in your in your geographical situations. Because, Eleanor, you're, you're in the Twin Cities, which has always struck me as having a pretty lively community. Minicon has always been uh, lively, and, and you've got, I assume you still have Uncle Hugo's there. Yeah. Um, but... Linda, you're out in Hawaii. Who else is out there? I mean, what, who do you talk to? What's your community like? Well, I don't actually have a writing community here. I live on Maui. Um, Kate Elliott's over on Oahu. Um, there's not a lot of us out here. There's, it's, I don't find a lot of interest in science fiction here. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Um, I sent a copy of The Red to um, a local newspaper, and the reviewer didn't seem to quite know what to make of it. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a little discouraging. Um, you know, when I see people going to conventions several times a year, I can feel a bit of envy. Um, I, think it, I think it's good to be connected to the community. Um, there's, not, there's not even a fan community there? There is a lot of interest in anime, um, oh. the kind of Comic Con, um, you know, related things, but literary is a little more subtle, a little more hard to find. So um, we're not we're not going to see a, a Honolulu Worldcon bid anytime soon. Uh, no, <laughs> but there are like, there are three Comic Cons here. Well. Yeah. What about the the great Hawaiian science fiction novel? You know who wrote that? Kathleen Ann Goonan wrote that. You that, remember her novel Kailani? That that seems ironic though. Shouldn't it oh, be yeah, somebody from there. Hawaii? 
she lived she lived in Hawaii as a child. Yes, she lived in Hawaii for a while. And I think mm-hmm. Paul Preuss's first novel was largely set in Hawaii, and I think he had lived there for a while as well. Although he's somebody else who's been away from the field for a while. Um, but it's it, the 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 list of Hawaiian science fiction writers is let's shall we say less than a page long. Oh, yeah, I think we could probably fit that on a little notepad. <laughs> <page>. <laughs> Let me, let me ask you, uh, you know, sort of not quite an ending question, but I'm, I'm curious with, with both of you. You're, you're both actively writing. You've got new books out, new books coming out. Are you optimistic about writing science fiction in 2015? Eleanor? <laughs> Interesting question. Um, I, have, uh, I have found myself shifting in the direction of fantasy, and I want to shift back. Um, because I think, for me at least, science fiction is harder than fantasy, and I would like to uh, 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 see what I can do with it. Um, yeah, I, um, I mean, here we are talking across, around the world, Um I really feel we're living in a, a, a science fictional world now, and we're facing, you know, really major science fictional disaster uh, novel type problems. And it seems to me incredibly important to write science fiction now, and that makes it very interesting. Do you, do you consider the hidden folk stories as fantasy stories? Um, yeah, they really are, um, I mean, they've got trolls and elves who are not... Well, they do, but, but, but the reason I ask the question is because it seems to me that if you're working with Icelandic folklore, you're constrained to some extent by the parameters of that folklore in a way that you wouldn't be with just an open fantasy where you invent everything from scratch. That is true. However, I will tell you that I took some, I've taken some liberties with Icelandic folklore. Okay. Um, uh, my trolls, for example, are generally kind of likable. And real <laughs> Icelandic trolls are often quite, um, they're, they're quite awful. I mean, you know, they're, they're classic trolls. They kill you. Yeah. Um, and I don't like my elves at all. And Icelandic elves tend to be a little bit nicer than my elves. My elves okay. are, you know, clearly the aristocracy. How about you, Linda? So how, how do you drink Yeah. Uh, I was talking last summer with Karen Tidbeck, the Swedish writer, who does some similar things with Swedish folklore and Swedish folktales uh, and has the same attitude that you, that you seem to have. Once they're in my story, they're my figures, and I can do what I want with them. Yeah, yeah. I've read one book of hers, and it was quite wonderful. And, and one of the other things, which is related to, I was at this convention of, of, of from Finland and, and Sweden, and it's, it seems increasingly in Scandinavian countries that the distinction between science fiction and fantasy is is arbitrary. You You have both things working in, in, in one volume. There's a wonderful novel by Johanna Sinasalo, uh, which is half science fiction about colony collapse disorder among bees and half portal fantasy oh, yeah. because the bees seem to have a way. Have you re- are you familiar with that book? It's just I have not read it, but I know about it, yes. 
Yeah. Um, so, so, so I think. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, nothing to say. But, okay. Well, Linda, your optimism about writing science fiction in the 2015 era. Um, I have mixed feelings about it, to be honest. It's there's a, a lot of, of channels in this field, shall we say? And what I found is that you can get at that reviewers and um, people who are really in the core of the field are quite interested in in books like The Red. Mm -hmm. But connecting with readers who are outside of that um, core genre uh, is, it's problematic is what I've found. Um, Just very recently, I got an email from someone and he said that he had picked up a copy of The Red at the library and for whatever reason, he checked it out and took it home and read it. And he really, really liked it. And he's ordered the sequel. Uh-huh. And he said, this was the first book by a woman that I've read in 20 years. Oh, dear. I actively, well, I actively avoid books by women. Yes, I know I'm a chauvinist. But I wanted to tell you that I really like this book and I'm going to have to start reading more women. Now, this is the first time in my experience that somebody has actually said, you know, I, I really basically almost didn't read your book because there's a woman's name on the cover. Usually, usually people won't admit that. And it just makes you wonder, you know, how prevalent is that out there in, in the great anonymous land of where of book buyers and book readers exist? And well, you're talking about, okay, but, you know, you're talking about, uh, in, in, in fairness to this, poor guy who is clearly in need of something. Um, you're talking about essentially people who pick up a book that looks like it's military science fiction. Yeah, um, or a thriller or, you know, and, and that's or the thing. Or a thriller or somebody who might have been reading Tom Clancy. Exactly. Um, yes. <laughs> how, but, how, do, how do we break into that audience? That's more and more I think that that is a challenge. You can sell a book, especially as a woman, okay, you can sell a book if it's about certain things, if it, if it fits into certain channels in the genre. But, um, yeah, you can get pretty interesting reactions like that. I had somebody else who um, was talking about the book, and um, he basically assured everybody else that it was not a romance, so it was okay to go read. <laughs> so, oh, dear. But, yeah, I, I guess the other – go ahead and finish your thought. I, I was oh. going to say that. You know, inside the genre where we talk about these things, I think we see things in one way. But out there in in the reader land, the people who rarely read reviews, they just go look for a book and pick it up. It's a, it's a right. different look. It's a different and And it's a little hard to figure out how to break into that world. So and I don't think any, I don't think anybody knows how to do it. I don't think publicists and marketing people they would love to know how to do it. I mean, everybody would love to know, for example, when you're talking about a woman writing what is essentially military science fiction, you've got Lois McMaster Bujold, who's been doing this very successfully for decades. And my suspicion is that her readership is simply a Lois McMaster Bujold readership. Uh, and, and that's all she needs. Uh, how do you become something like that? I, I don't know. Do you have any ideas? If I had any ideas, I would have tried them already. <laughs> 
I have gotten interested mostly because of uh, Lois's writing and also C.J. Cherry's in women who write something that is, to one degree or another, space opera. And there are actually quite a few women who do it. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. do it well. um, And they do it successfully. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And um, and not only that, but they're... uh, I believe that that there are patterns of themes in those. Well, to to look at Anne Leckie, I've read the first two books so far. She's really writing about nurture. She's also writing about revenge, but to a considerable extent, she's writing about nurture. That first book, the entire book, her viewpoint character is taking care of someone who has essentially fallen to pieces. And you don't normally think of military SF as being about nurture. Um, a lot of Bujold is about, um, uh, uh, I mean, I think the uterine replicators are key to Bujold. A yeah. lot of it is about yeah. having children. So I think there's this whole mm-hmm. field of uh, uh, women's uh it's not always it's it's not only always military SF but but space opera and military SF that frequently has the feel of military SF except that the characters are worried about issues that uh, you know like uh, uh, the the boat uh, the Bouchard book about the guy who is uh, who wants to have children and can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the more recent... One of the uh, more Pussigan novels, yeah. Yes. Uh, and the guy essentially commits multiple murders so that he can steal a ship full of uh, fetuses in uterine replicators because he wants to have a family. Now, that's a really interesting motivation. Uh, and I think it's, it's kind of a female one. So I'm trying to push the whole idea of women's military SF and space opera. Mm-hmm. Well, Linda, you were venturing into space opera territory by the time you when you by the time Vast came out. Uh, there's there there are a lot of space. Maybe you were just a little bit ahead of your time there. Maybe maybe women's hard SF space opera is a is a 2010 or 2020 thing rather than a 1990 thing. <laughs> well. The book's out there if anyone wants to try it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, to some extent, the, the that issue, the, that issue with the, the new space opera, we've, we've talked uh, some time ago on the podcast with people like Paul McCauley, so, which this kind of new space opera of the 90s is, for a lot of people, difficult to publish these days, at least in the States. Not just uh, not just women writers, but but British writers as well. Um, so what do you mean by new space opera? Well, the kind of thing that Paul McCauley and Alastair McReynolds uh, have, have been writing, the kinds of things that usually are confined more or less to the solar system that mm-hmm. deal with uh, a, a lot of uh, genetic and, 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 uh, and, and biological technologies as well as space travel that are a little bit more realistic and certainly more heavily character-based than the classic space operas of the 30s. Okay, okay. That's interesting. Oh, I wouldn't have defined it that way, Gary. <laughs> what? I was saying, that's interesting. I wouldn't have defined it that way. 
I think, How I think, would you define it? I think God, New Space it? Opera, having edited a couple of books of it, are basically darker, more politically oriented stories uh, set in a space uh, opera context. Uh, I and, think I think you, and I think you can see the evolution of it in the work of C.J. Cherry and in the work of other people. And I think it is largely originates from a famous editorial written in uh, Interzone back in the, the Interzone. 80s, call, yeah, calling for a new form of hard SF. And to some degree, that new space opera was it. And some women ran on the ground of it. What's very curious, though, is it does appear that with a few particular exceptions, and I do wonder with, uh, with Bujol to what extent she is supported by the, the Bain publishing environment to be more successful. Because I look at a writer like, say, Gwyneth Jones, who's a wonderful, wonderful writer, and written some fabulous hard science fiction, but struggles to be published in the modern, in, in the modern environment. You know, would a different publishing environment support someone like that better? You know, I'm also sort of curious, I don't know what anybody thinks, as to whether whether the push for inclusiveness that we hear talked about, particularly in social media within science fiction circles, is in step with the rest of the community? Or is it um, out of step and less likely to be responded to sympathetically by a broader audience? That's an interesting question. Yes, it um, is. What, what I've found over the years is that, especially, you know, back in the 90s, the people I would hear most from regarding my books were men. And just it would be occasionally mm. that I would hear from women who enjoyed the books. And these days, I am very, very, very happy to say that I hear from a lot more women who are starting to read, you know, these kinds of hard science fiction books and seem to really like them. And so in that sense, I think all the discussion of, of um, diversity and, and women in science fiction is getting a lot more women interested to take a look and see what's going on out there. And I'm talking about hard science fiction here. Um, right. I mean, but in fairness to those guys who responded to your books, you wrote a novel with the title with the title Tech Heaven, which has got to be catnip to guys in basements. No wonder you heard from guys. <laughs> well, I guess we should have that title. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, it's a I, I responded to the title that way. This looks like fun, and it was, but nevertheless. <laughs> we're, we're, we're sort of getting towards the end of the hour. I guess I wanted to ask you both briefly. You've got, in, in your case, Linda, you've just sort of got the last volume of a trilogy sort of coming out in, in, in about a month. So, that, so the, the Red Trilogy will be out. In your case, Eleanor, you've had the collection of Icelandic stories come out last, last year, and you've got the Huarhath book coming out next year. What do you both have coming up beyond that? Do you have any, any th sort of thoughts as to what you're likely to do next, Eleanor? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um... I think the next book size project is going to be the Lydia Duluth stories. Mm -hmm. um, oh, cool. And if, if I was going to write a novel again, I think it would be a Lydia Duluth novel. Um, uh, speaking of space opera, I, I, I love those stories. I, I think they're, uh, uh, they're enormous fun to write. Uh, so I want to, put together a collection of what has already been written and then I think go ahead and write some more and that is the one 
idea I've had for a novel, uh, you know, the one kind of topic that makes me think, yes, I could write that as a novel. That would be um, that would be a lot of fun. Great. I look forward to that. And Linda? Lynn? Well, I'm hoping, starting tonight, to get back to work on, on my next <laughs> novel, <laughs> which has been on the back burner for the past few months. But that's um, planned to be another very near future uh, novel with a military theme. Take one more crack at this uh, thriller market and see how that goes. Wonderful. And um, beyond that, I'm just, I'm not sure. I, I kind of have a history in my career of switching from one thing to another, and we'll see if that happens again. Okay, well, but this, Gary? we'll look forward to both of uh, those projects. Well, thank you very much. Yes, until such time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both very, very much for joining us. We appreciate you making the time. It's been a great conversation. And I hope that one way or another we'll get a chance to sort of run into you at a Worldcon or a World Fantasy Convention sometime in the next sort of 12 months and maybe get to sort of cat, uh, talk uh, you know, again a little bit closer to the time that your next book's coming out. Okay, okay. Right. Excellent. Thanks a lot. Okay. It's, been very, it's been very enjoyable. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you both. And Gary, I will talk to you next week. Until then, this well, is the Coop Street Podcast. <laughs> um.